What an absolute privilege it is to celebrate baptism together as a community, to listen to stories of people who are proclaiming with their bodies in the baptism tank that the death and resurrection of Jesus has defeated the power of sin and death in their own life and that they are dying to the person that they used to be and they are, Jesus is raising them to life as a brand new kind of person. I mean, these are some of our favorite moments, honestly, as a church, period. Um, I think sometimes as a pastor, one of the reasons why these moments are so special is because we spend so much time seeing people at other moments in their lives that aren't, you know, maybe quite so um, exciting and hope-filled. We spend a lot more time with people who are further down the road of faith and a lot of time with people who are finding themselves in circumstances where it's a lot harder to be hope-filled about life and faith. I remember years ago, and actually this was before I was a pastor, before I worked here. It was when I was a framer. So um, before we had generally come to the consensus that uh, there is no excuse for me to pick up a tool ever, that these hands are not made for calluses. They're, I have very soft hands. I'm, I'm, the, I'm the only brother to get fired from the family construction business, honestly. Well, that's not true. I retired early before uh, they were able to let me go. But the, the point is, back then, I was working as a framer, and I met a guy on the job site one day, a guy by the name of Darren, that I got to know a little bit over the course of a couple of weeks. And over the break conversation and lunchtime, Darren would share bits and pieces of his story about where his life was at. And I don't remember the details. I just remember Darren being in a really rough place in his life, really discouraged, even depressed at times. And I asked Darren one day, I said, Darren, I said, would you ever consider coming out to church and trying to figure out where God is in all of this? And he he looked at me with this sort of dismissive look and he said, absolutely not. He said, I've done the whole church thing. I've leaned into faith before. And then he said this, he said, I've tried Jesus and Jesus didn't work for me. I wonder whether you know somebody in your life who's been in that place. I've tried God and God didn't work for me. Maybe you have been in situations or are in circumstances right now where that's where you're at in life, where I'm trying God, but I'm not sure that God is working for me. And it kind of raises this question about how and why it is that some people travel through very difficult circumstances in life and they emerge out the other side with this alive and vibrant and strong love and devotion to God despite their circumstances and yet other people travel through difficult circumstances and they end up in this place where they eventually say, listen, I've tried God and he just doesn't work for me. What makes the difference between those two kinds 
of people. And I think that is exactly what James is drilling into in the passage that we're going to look at this morning in James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. You can turn there in your Bibles or your Bible app or whatever you have. Um, Because you have to remember, James as a pastor is writing to a community of people for whom life has sucked. They have had to, many of them, uh, leave their homes, leave their families, leave their jobs, leave their lives behind. In fact, run for their lives because of the intensity of the persecution that's come on them because they put their faith in Jesus Christ. They've had to flee their homes and now many of them are living as refugees in a foreign country where they don't speak the land, living the language, living in abject poverty, being mistreated and exploited as foreigners and their life has just absolutely hit the skids. And in that community that James is writing to, he knows that there have to be people who are responding in the midst of it all with this question that we just in our humanness, ask whenever our life goes through really dark periods. And the question is, why God? God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? Why are you not rescuing me from these circumstances? It's the question that only makes sense when your life is when you're really getting body slammed by life. And to be honest, um, when you go to the Bible to try and find the answer of where is God in the midst of our difficult circumstances, the answer isn't always clear because the Bible says a few different things. Honestly, sometimes you get stories where people's lives are going through really difficult times and and the Bible says, and God was testing them to see what was in their heart. And it kind of makes it sound like God is the author of our circumstances, even our terrible circumstances, because he wants to see what kind of people we really are. But there are other times when The Bible describes difficult circumstances not as though God were doing it, but just the opposite, as though the devil were doing it. In fact, there is a story in the Old Testament that's told two times in two different places in two different books. And the first time, the story says, and God caused this to happen. It was a terrible circumstance. But the second time the story is told by a different author, the author says, no, it wasn't God. It was the devil who caused this to happen. It's almost as though the second author was saying, no, 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 that's not true. God didn't do this to you. The devil did it to you. And then sometimes... It seems even more confusing than that. It feels like both. In Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Jesus was led by God into the difficult place in order to be tempted by the devil. So who is it that's causing the difficult circumstances for Jesus? God or the devil or both or... How, when you're in the midst of it, and life is putting the screws to you in a way that tests the very metal of your faith, where is God in the midst of all of that? And James knows 
that because of the circumstance of his readers, he needs to provide them with an answer. And so this is what James says. In James chapter 1, verse 13, he says, when you are tested or tempted. Now, I say tested or tempted because the Greek word that here is translated tempted is the word parasmos. And the word parasmos in Greek both means testing and temptation. The same word describes the difficult external circumstances that we sometimes live through that really test the metal of our faith. But it also describes the difficult internal spiritual circumstances of temptation where in the midst of times of testing, we are tempted to make bad decisions in our life of faith. It, it describes both. And so James says, when, when you are being tested or tempted... No one should say God is testing or tempting me. For God cannot be tested or tempted by evil, nor does he test or tempt anyone. James says when, when you're going through the dark seasons and you're getting body slammed by life in a way that's really testing the metal of your faith, no one should say God is doing this. To me. Because God is not doing this to you. And James gives two reasons for saying so. He says, number one, God cannot be tested or tempted. There's a little bit of debate about what this means. In the Greek, it just says, for God is without temptation. God is untouched by testing or temptation. And here's what I think James is saying. This whole passage is about the way that we respond when life is hard. It's all about the temptation that we face to be unfaithful to Jesus when our circumstances get really difficult and so I think that's what he's talking about about God he says for he says the reason you know that God doesn't test or tempt anyone God is not responsible for the challenging circumstances or for the inner turmoil that you're living with spiritually right now because number one God himself is not tempted to be unfaithful to you when you test him he says, I know you're being tested in a way that is tempting you to be unfaithful to God. He says, when the tables are turned and you are testing God, God is never tempted to be unfaithful to you. So since God himself is never tempted in the midst of testing, God never tempts anyone in the midst of their testing. God never inflicts that on somebody else. Essentially, what James is saying is God's entire being lives outside of the realm of evil. He is untouched by evil and temptation at every level. He has absolutely nothing to do with it. He has no truck with evil. He doesn't cooperate with evil. He doesn't participate with evil. God has nothing to do with evil. And so if you're living through evil circumstances right now, and you're experiencing internally the temptation to make decisions that are unfaithful to God in the midst of it, God is not doing that. To you. So where is it coming from then? James goes on to say this. But each person is tested or tempted 
when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. James says that inner turmoil that you feel, that struggle that you're living with every day of your life to want to continue to be faithful to God. He says that is the desire of your heart kind of literally at war with itself. The Jewish rabbis used to say that every person has two desires that reside in their spirit. The one they called Yetzer Hatov, the desire for the good, the desire to remain faithful to God. And the other is called Yetzer Hara, and it's the desire for the bad, the desire to be unfaithful to God. The Apostle Paul says in one of his letters, he says, I don't do the thing that I want to do. I want to obey the law and be faithful to God, and then I don't do it. And so sin is at war within me. This is exactly what James is talking about. He says, in the midst of those difficult circumstances, what you're actually grappling with is the battle of the desires in your soul. He says, because there is a part of you that wants to be faithful to God and there is a part of you that wants to do whatever it takes to make the pain go away. And he says, that's the dangerous part, the desire to make the pain go away. He says, that is the evil desire, the yetzer harak, the desire to be unfaithful to God in, in order to relieve the pain in your life. And he says, what happens there, he says, if you're not careful, that desire to relieve the pain can actually lure you and drag you away. The, The metaphor is actually a fishing metaphor of the bait on the hook and getting snagged by the line. James says, imagine in the midst of these circumstances, you're like a fish swimming through the water of the pain of your life and you're starving, hungry, and you haven't eaten for days. And all of a sudden there is a worm that is magically and mysteriously um, levitating in the water right in front of you. And you see in front of you the opportunity. If I can just close my jaws on that worm, I can make this starvation go away. And he says, you lock onto the worm and the hook is set and now you are being dragged somewhere that you don't want to go he says that's what that desire to make the pain go away to do anything to make life easier that's what that is like and you know it that's the temptation that exists inside of every time of testing every set of difficult circumstances. You're you're struggling financially for whatever reason. Work is bad or whatever the reason. And in your heart, you begin to question God's provision for your life. Why isn't God taking care of me and my family? And, And that's when the temptation emerges. What if I did some work, but I did it under the table? What if I just found a way to cut the corner off my taxes and save myself some money? What if I just cut off the giving, the generosity in my life and just kept the money for myself? There's this temptation to make a decision 
of unfaithfulness. You're feeling the pressure at school. The assignments are too many. The work is too hard. The exams are worth too much. And you wonder about the wisdom of God for having you in this place and what temptation emerges, the temptation to cheat, to use somebody else's work, to plagiarize that paper that's due on Thursday or else you'll never get it done to to cheat on the exam. You're in a relationship that's going sideways. A marriage, a romantic relationship, and the pain is almost more than you can bear. And you begin to wonder about the wisdom of God of putting the two of you together. You even begin to doubt that it is the will of God that you stay together. And what is the temptation that emerges? The temptation is to stop fighting for your marriage or for your relationship, to stop taking responsibility for the parts that are yours, to to just walk away when the relationship could have been saved. You're living in a season of grief. You've lost a loved one. And in the midst of it all, you begin to wonder whether God even loves you at all. And the temptation suddenly emerges. What if I just got into another relationship? Right? Who cares if it's the right person? Consequences be damned. I just need to feel like I'm loved again. You're crushed by the injustice that you see in the world all around you. And and you're beginning to doubt that God is really a God of justice. And the temptation emerges to respond with anger and violence. Whether violence in your mind or violence in your heart or violence in your words. Or even violence with your body towards the people that you perceive to be responsible. You learn to hate them like an enemy. There's always a temptation buried deep in the difficult circumstances that we live through in life. And James says if you end up taking the bait, sin will drag you to places that you never wanted to go. In fact, he changes metaphors in verse 15. He says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. He, it's an interesting metaphor. He changes from fishing to seduction. And I'm far more sympathetic with the second metaphor. It is much more meaningful to me than fishing metaphors. <laughs> but it's an interesting metaphor. Because sometimes in the moment of seduction, you actually know that you're making the wrong choice. But man, it feels like such the right choice in the moment. It feels like it's going to help. James says you, you make the choice and desire suddenly conceives and gives birth to sin. You may not even know the sin that has been birthed by that desire initially. Sometimes it takes weeks or even months for a pregnancy to begin to show. For other people to be able to see subtle signs that sin is actually growing 
inside your life right now until eventually, you know, you just give birth to, you know, an open manifestation of sin in your life. And even though labor is hard and messy and painful, it's still exciting and hope giving because something new is being born. And maybe this will change everything. James says it won't. Because that sin will grow up and it will become mature and it's itself will give birth to a child. This is your grandchild now and that child is deaf. James says your desire gives birth to sin and that sin gives birth to a child that will come back and kill you. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. The only payout you can ever expect to receive from being unfaithful to Christ is death. Death in your relationship with God. Death in your own sense of your own identity. You lose a sense of who you are. Death in your relationships as as sin begins to distort the relationships you have with people you love. Death in terms of your place in the world. It will only ever always be death. What James is saying is that in the midst of your difficult circumstances, you are always faced with the choice of which desire you will pursue. The desire for the good, which James says comes out of the wisdom of God, strengthens your faith, grows you into the image of Christ, and leads to full and satisfying life. Or the desire for sin, or the desire Um, to escape the pain which will always give birth to sin and will lead to your eventual ruin. James says when you're in the midst of the circumstances and you want to ask, why is God doing this to me? God is not doing this to you. It's not about what God is doing to you. It is about what you are doing in your own soul. Because what God is doing never changes. In verse 16, James says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. James says that this doesn't have to do with God. He says, don't be deceived by your circumstances, to think that God is willing evil on your life. God doesn't even know how to do that. The only thing that God knows how to do is to give you good and perfect gifts, to give you kindly and generously the thing you need right now, to give you the perfect gift at the perfect time, precisely what you needed in the moment. This is the only thing that God knows how to do. Said the other way, James says, every good and perfect thing you've ever experienced in your life, Every experience of the kindness and generosity of others or the universe. Every time you were given the perfect gift at the perfect time. And it was exactly what you needed to get you through what you were going through at the exact moment. That was God who did that for you. However it arrived. 
the only thing that God knows to do, how to do in your life, is to give you good and perfect gifts. And he does it reliably, dependably, and unwaveringly. James says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of the heavenly lights, comes from the one, James says, who created the sun and the moon and the stars. God, the creator, who is, whose power lies behind the order of the universe. The reliability of the son is the one who only knows how to give you good gifts. James is essentially saying this. If you can count on the son to rise tomorrow morning, you can count on God to give you good and perfect gifts. If you can count on the fact that the moon will shine tonight, if the sky is clear, you can count on God to shower you with good and perfect gifts. And unlike the sun and the moon, which sometimes disappear, the moon during the day and the sun at night, God's goodness and his generosity never disappears. And unlike the sun and the moon, which are sometimes eclipsed, God's goodness and generosity will never be blocked in your life. Nothing will ever stand in your way. And sometimes, unlike the stars, which are constantly in motion, God is steadily and steadfastly only ever postured towards you in one way, <coughs> excuse me, which is to fill your life with good and perfect gifts. That is the only thing that God knows how to do with you. And James says, and this is the very best gift that he's chosen to give. He says, God chose in verse 18 to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he's created. James says God only knows to give good and perfect gifts. And here's the gift he gave you. He gave you a new birth in Jesus Christ. James actually lists. If you think about the things we've talked about in this series. James lists the gifts of God in the midst of our difficult circumstances. He says God gives us wisdom. To know how to respond rightly in a way that will strengthen our faith and grow us to be more like Jesus. He is a single-minded devotion to do that for us. If we are single-mindedly devoted to responding in faithfulness in the midst of our difficult circumstances. James says he will give us a stronger faith. He will grow our perseverance and endurance he says he will give us the life of Jesus. We will learn to love God more deeply, to love ourselves more completely, to love each other more meaningfully, and to love the world more sacrificially as we become more like Jesus, he promises to give us life itself. He says, if you respond in faithfulness and become strong in faith and grow to be like Christ, that is the richest, deepest, most meaningful, most filling and fulfilling way you could possibly live. He gives us new birth. 
the chance to become brand new human beings like we celebrated with those who were being baptized this morning. The gift that God gives in the midst of our circumstances is Jesus, whose life and whose death and whose resurrection gives us the spiritual power to respond rightly, to grow strong in faith, to become like Jesus and experience the richness of the life that God has for us if, if we are faithful to choose the good instead of giving in to the temptation to do whatever it takes to escape the pain. The very last petition in the Lord's Prayer is this one. God, lead us not into times of trial or testing or temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In the midst, God, of all of what we're going through in life right now, would you spare us from the temptation to give into the desire to do whatever it takes to make the pain go away? And would you allow us, instead of choosing the temptation that gives birth to sin, that gives birth to death, would you... Allow us, would you empower us to choose the endurance that leads to Christ's likeness, that leads to life. Let's pray together. Father, we often cry out to you, blame you for our circumstances and I'm thankful, God, that you allow us to call out to you in our pain and to be honest with you about how we feel and about how badly we want you to show up in our circumstances and to set us free from the pain that we're living in. And I know that there are people in the community right now who are begging you to set them free. And God, I agree with all of those prayers. But in the meantime, would you give us the wisdom would you give us the strength of faith, the courage to respond like Jesus so we can experience the life of abundance that you have for us. Only you can do that, and so we give ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.